it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Monday, September 21st, 2009. And uh, I think once again I've probably overprepared. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There are some very seductive, and if that's heresies, that's the right word for it. There are some very seductive heresies and false doctrine uh, running through the church right now, a church that has completely unbuckled itself from God's word and has abandoned the truth of Scripture and the biblical gospel for uh, these uh, phony $3 bill emergent uh, seeker-driven ideas, or worse, the... Uh, uh, prosperity type gospelish stuff that's running around out there. And I got to tell you, this stuff is just deadly. <sighs> so this program it does the tough work of comparing what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God, because here's the deal. God's word is truth. And heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not. So if somebody's out there telling you that God is like this or that such and such is going to happen in the name of God or that this is what how we're to behave as Christians or this is what we're supposed to think and their do- and their doctrine what they're teaching by the way everybody has doctrine it's everybody has doctrine there, there's either true doctrine or false doctrine and doctrine is nothing more than a uh, biblical term that has to do with the content of teaching of what it is that's being taught. So I don't care if you sit there and go, well, you know, doctrine is a four-letter word, and we are we don't have any doctrine except for the Bible itself. Well, that statement itself is doctrine. <laughs> so don't sit there and tell me about how terrible the idea of doctrine is and uh, because that's a doctrine in and of itself. Again, lots of self-defeating ideas running around out there, but... So here's the deal. So, so everybody is teaching you doctrine regarding God, and some doctrine is grounded in Scripture, and it's true, and some doctrine uh, has uh, the Bible sprinkled over it, and it's false, and some stuff is just comes out of left field and is made up in the mind of the person out there proclaiming it. you got to watch out for that stuff, too. So everything gets brought back on this program and compared to the Word of God. And uh, i got to tell you, Ever since my uh, trip to Chicago and uh, in attending the Jurgen Moltmann conference, I gotta, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I got a lot of emergent stuff on my mind, and I've gone back through and am um, re-examining uh, Brian McLaren's book, A Generous Orthodoxy, in light of what I know now, what the emergent church is, and the emergent church can be described uh, three ways right now. It's neo-Hegelian, which basically means that it embraces a Hegelian worldview that that contradictions synthesize into new realities. 
Um, it's uh, panentheistic. That is, is that uh, it's this idea that God is everything or in every panentheism. God is in everything, but in a way that uh, there's no distinction between creator and creation. It's quite different than the uh, the biblical doctrine of Christ's omnipresence, and it's universalistic. Universal in the sense that. Um, that somehow everything, everybody is saved and uh, the gospel's good news for everybody, regardless of what religion you practice. You don't need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, you can be a follower of God in the way of Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. I mean, McLaren in, in uh, Generous Orthodoxy even says that there's wheat, not chaff, in uh, other religions. Um, yeah, read chapter 17 of Generous, Generous Orthodoxy if you don't believe me. So uh, kind of re-examining uh, McLaren's uh, book, now that I have the emergent decoder ring, and that is I understand what's uh, running under the hood. It's basically a neo-Hegelian panentheistic universalism that uh, is a popularized version of the theology of hope and the theology of uh, Jürgen Moltmann. And by the way, that's kind of a bad way of putting it. Uh, theology that doesn't have its origin in and abides in and limits itself to God's word is not theology. These are not words about God. That becomes metaphysics or spirituality or something completely other. And, and Moltmann, I don't consider him to be a theologian. The reason I don't consider him to be a theologian is, is because his, quote, theology isn't grounded in God's word. In fact, it outright contradicts it. As a result of it, yeah, I put myself at odds with the uh, with the emergent church. But anyway, that, all of that is kind of prelude into today's program, which, of course, the Monday program kind of kicks off uh, what we're doing for the week. So with that in mind, let's talk about our program today. And I can already tell there's going to be cuts. Um, what I have on deck, and if I don't get to some of the news stories today, then I'll save them over for tomorrow. But we'll talk about I'll list them off today. I got two emails that I want to uh, take a look at today that ask me questions uh, that require me to give uh, basically intensive biblical answers. So when we do email today, it's going to be important that you all have your Bibles handy and we'll take a look at uh, what Scripture has to say regarding some of the questions that have been brought up uh, via email. And i got two in particular that I'm going to be talking about, one having to do with the imputed uh, sin that's imputed to us through Adam, and the other is, is the, the uh, emergent concept of the end of the world. We'll talk about that. And then i uh, got a news story that I definitely want to do today uh, from the Telegraph in the U.K. I've got a story that the headline reads, Christian couple faces losing hotel. That's right, they own a hotel. After criminal charges have been brought against them for offending a Muslim woman. I kid you not, this is a story out of the U.K., out of Great Britain, and it's frightening. Um, and and then I've also got another story of persecution, which I don't know if I'm going to get to today. It just all depends on how things pan out. A Chinese megachurch uh, was demolished by... Uh, uh, basically a, a, a group of people. And and then we also uh, got news that uh, the follow-up to The Purpose Driven Life, uh, a new book uh, by Rick Warren is supposed to hit shelves in November. Hide your children. Uh, might want to get into your, uh, your doctrinal bunkers because every time Rick Warren writes a book, uh, scripture twisting uh, almost to an art form occurs. It's really, really bad. And uh, we'll talk about that story if we can get to it today. If not, I promise I will get to that tomorrow. And then for to round out the program today, second hour, we're going to be uh, listening to not a sermon, but a really good lecture. And the, I forgot I even had this. It's a, a very old lecture given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt 
of the White Horse Inn on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And I think this uh, this recording is going on probably 15 years. It, it could be 15, almost 20 years old. And uh, definitely worth listening to. And so our, our it's going to be, rather than a sermon, it's going to be a great lecture. By the way, if you've ever heard Dr. Rosenblatt uh, give a sermon, <laughs> it's very similar to what you're going to hear. Um, I, I've had the occasion of hearing Dr. Rosenblatt uh, give a couple of sermons uh, from time to time. He uh, when he used to live in California during the summertime, if uh, Pastor Ron Holdel would go out of town, uh, then uh, Dr. Rosenblatt would uh, would sit in as the presiding pastor for the day. He is an ordained minister in the uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And uh, but the, you know, those days are long gone because they they now have Jeremy Rohde as uh, as a second pastor there. And Dr. Rosenblatt doesn't live in Southern California during his time off. He heads up somewhere into the Pacific Northwest, into the woods there to fire off uh, his arsenal of weaponry and and live as a mountain man. I think he grows a beard and looks something like uh, Grizzly Adams during that time. <laughs> Don't don't tell him I said that. Anyway, so uh, with that in mind, we're going to dive into our program proper and understand there's a high chance that we're going to there's going to be some cuts today because uh, I, there's a lot of ground I want to cover. First email comes from Stephen in Eugene, Oregon, and he asked this question. He says, uh, "Chris, I'm curious. Uh, do you know why sin was imputed to us through Adam rather than also through Eve? Now, why is a uh, is a tough question. I don't exactly have the answer as to why. Uh, why questions are very tough to answer. Why? 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 I if unless, and this is a good, uh, this is a great point to point out is that we as Christians must be bold and proclaim." where the scriptures are clear and where scripture is silent, it is best for us to go. I have no idea. So Steve, the answer to your question is, I don't know why exactly. And for me to uh, notice that even the answer I gave regarding what theologians have written, it's all speculative. And so I don't know why, but I, I do know for a fact that, uh, that this is clearly taught in Scripture. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, Romans chapter 5, and uh, we'll go from there. It says, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... I'm reading the whole chapter, by the way, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified, by the way, uh, there in uh, Romans chapter 5, to be declared righteous through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly." For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I have to take that phrase from Romans chapter 5, verse 9, that we have been saved from the wrath of God, and tuck that away in your memory. We're going to need to remember that and recall it when I get to the second email. I just wanted to point it out You know, as far as when people say, hey, brother, are you saved? A good question to ask that person is, saved from what? 
<laughs> what am I? Be, what am I supposedly being saved from? Uh, high prices over at the local grocery store? What? What am I being saved from? Am I being saved from a tornado or a hurricane? What am I being saved from? Uh, the answer to the question is the wrath of God, the coming wrath of God that will be revealed short, soon enough. Um, however, we continue. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now we continue. Uh, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12 could not be more exact in its language. Sin came into the world through one man. It doesn't say that it came into the world through uh, one woman. It says it came into the world through one man. Man, and that man being Adam. Now, here's the deal. You, uh, Stephen, you asked a why question. Why? I don't know. I don't think I have a passage that tells me why. So therefore, it is best if I just say, mm, I don't, uh, the, uh, Scripture doesn't say. It's best if I don't say. For indeed, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So uh, here we go. Um, let me read just a little bit more. Uh, Romans 5.18, therefore, as one, man, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law, the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the long and the short of it is, is that this section of scripture it puts basically Adam and Jesus on two completely parallel tracks. Of course, they're heading in, the, in different directions, but they're parallel. Adam and Jesus, Jesus being the second Adam. Through Adam, all are made sinners. Through the trespass of the one man, Adam, all of us become sinners. And through Christ's death on the cross and the second Adam, uh, we are made righteous. We are made righteous. We are declared to be righteous. Adam's sin is imputed to us. Jesus' righteousness, uh, in the same way, is imputed to us by faith. So, uh, you know, that's the answer to your question is uh, regarding why. It doesn't say. It just says that it does. Why, I don't know. That it does is so clear. Listen to this. Uh, there's a cross reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 also kind of picks up on this, and it says, uh, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
So uh, scripture puts Adam and, and Jesus on you know basically parallel tracks, one heading in one direction, the other heading the other. And the first Adam and the second Adam, that's where when we hear talk about Jesus being the second Adam, that's what it's referring to. His righteousness being imputed to us while the first Adam's, his sin is imputed to us and we all become sinners. Okay, now there was a second part to uh, your email, Steve. Let me see. Um, also, uh, how could Jesus not have original sin through Mary? Okay, now, Stephen, again, again, you're asking a question that gets me off into speculative theology. Okay, your first question was why, I don't know, but that it exists is true. Also, how could Jesus not have uh, original sin through Mary? The plain and simple answer here, it, the, as far as the how is concerned, I don't know all the mechanics. I don't know how uh, this um, how this sinful nature is passed down. It doesn't say in Scripture, but we do know this: that Jesus Christ um, is hu- fully human, and he has a very uh, unique conception in that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he does not have a true earthly father. Okay. Um, the, does that mean that, uh, you know, that uh, if women can somehow uh, spontaneously get pregnant without the help of, of a man, that the, the, the child that, would, uh, that she would give birth to uh, would be sinless? Um, <laughs> again, that you see, you see how you, you it's really easy to get your get your mind off on another track uh the, the bible doesn't answer such a question so i cannot speak authoritatively to it and we as christians need to hedge ourselves in and where god's word is clear we are clear and we are certain where god's word is clear and where god's word is quiet where god's word doesn't say we need to say don't know Justin, I don't know. God hasn't revealed that to us, so I can't answer the question. All right, moving along to the next email, and this is going to be the most biblically intensive uh, answers for this. Uh, Randy writes, and I don't know where Randy lives, he says, uh, tonight I'm listening to your radio show on the Moltmann Conference. Uh, you mentioned that the emergent crowd believes that God will make all things new, and you seem to be uh, startled by this eschatology. Um, yes, and it has. It, and I'll explain why I'm startled uh, in just a minute, uh, Randy, but I want to read more of your email. Since you mentioned at the beginning of the show that we should follow the biblical text, doesn't Revelation suggest that all things will be made anew. If Revelation suggests such, uh, shouldn't we believe that as well? Uh, again, okay, the answer to your question is, yes, Scripture does say that, that Christ is going to make all things new again. that The, the reality is, is that we have to allow the rest of Scripture that talks about that particular renewal to give us the details of what that renewal looks like. And if in the details, we have similar language that doesn't jive with what Scripture reveals regarding that renewal. Then we need to repent and bend the knee to God's word because we're wrong. And in that, in this particular sense, the emergent church is way off the rails. They've, their eschatology of hope uh, denies clear passages of Scripture. It denies the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ in judgment to judge the living and the dead, and. Furthermore, the emergent church and uh, those who follow Jürgen Jürgen Moltmann's theology of hope, they believe instead that Jesus is at the end of time, 
which actually is probably a beginning, um, saying, behold, I make all things new. And what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to find where God is working in the world, because that's where the kingdom of God is, and we're supposed to participate in it so that we can become co-recreators of the world uh, with Christ. Okay, so it's this idea that Jesus isn't going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Instead, Jesus is going to make all things new and we participate. We are co-recreators in making the world new with Jesus. And how is that? How do we do that? Well, we find somebody who's naked. We clothe them. We find somebody who's hungry. We feed them and see by doing those things, we're 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 creating the world anew. And supposedly, it's our job uh, to work with Christ. Uh, he's working through us because, of course, he has no hands and feet, according to them. Uh, to do this, it's our job to uh, help God realize his dream for the world, and that is the kingdom of God here on earth. Basically, uh, the Garden of Eden uh, brought back to us. Time uh, reversed. Uh, the Garden brought back. Entropy stopped. Uh, and all of that. So basically what happens, things are going to get better and better and better and better because we're the ones co-recreating with Christ. Now, that's what the emergent church teaches. So it's not just, it's not this idea that, okay, listen, some passages in scripture say, they make it clear that, uh, the earth, the heavens and earth pass away and that there's a new heavens and new earth. And, and one group says, well, well, that doesn't sound practical. Uh, maybe it just means that Christ is going to renew the earth and he, and when he returns, he's going to make all things new. That's not what the emergent church teaches. They deny the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ in chronos time to judge the living and the dead and to bring about a new heavens and new earth. Instead, we are the ones who are responsible for for bringing the new heavens and new earth into reality uh, by participating with God and becoming co-recreators with Christ and in, in bringing that reality into existence, which is not a biblical teaching at all. And, uh, one, and what I'm going to do here, in just a second, I'm going to go through the passages that clearly show what the Bible teaches on this. And, uh, and, and then you can uh, interact with me if you'd like again. But, um, there's another kind of a follow up to what you, uh, your, your email question. I want to do the follow up first before I get into the scripture. Yeah, uh, you, you, you asked me, you said, you spent a while talking about Hegel, but did, uh, the Moltmann conversation really spend, uh, much time talking about Hegel directly? It, it just doesn't seem like something Moltmann would focus on. Um, uh, looking forward to your response, Randy, uh, and I don't know where Randy's from. Uh, by the way, at the Moltmann conversation, at the emergent conversation that took place in Chicago, Hegel really wasn't brought up that much. However, that does not mean that Hegel is not running under the hood there. If you pick up a copy of The Theology of Hope, I picked up a copy of that while I was there. And uh, and if you read it, and I've read it, uh, Moltmann discusses Hegel quite openly. And so... He, he is very clear about the fact that he is embracing a Hegelian way of looking at the world. And so Hegel most definitely is uh, a very important thing in being a, a in, uh, you have to understand Hegel to understand Moltmann. And Moltmann has made it very clear that uh, he's Hegelian and that he would never graduate a graduate student uh, that came and studied under him unless that person adopted a Hegelian worldview. Um, just, just want to let you know. So the answer to the question is, even though Hegel was uh, probably not, really not discussed much at the uh, at the emergent conversation, that does not change the fact that uh, Hegel is a very important component of understanding Moltmann's theology, and uh, and uh, saying that it doesn't seem like something Moltmann would focus on, uh, basically tells me you need to read more Moltmann. <laughs> 
because <laughs> uh, in his theology of hope, he talks about Hegel quite a bit. So uh, anyway, coming circling back now, what I want to do is I want to show you from Scripture, Randy, what it is the Bible teaches regarding the end of the world. Scripture could not be clearer that Christ is going to physically, bodily return from heaven to judge the living and the dead, and he's going to destroy the current heavens and current earth, and he's going to renew them, recreate them, so to speak, and that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And I'm going to also throw into this mix here, we're going to listen to a little bit of uh, Brian McLaren and uh, his... Uh, his Moltmannian theology of hope uh, that is is expressed rather clearly um, in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, so you can kind of see the difference. Now, to start with, and understand we're going to have to take a break partway through this, I'm going to begin at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In 2 Peter chapter 3, as I pointed out last Monday, uh, Peter prophesies that in the very last days, okay, immediately before Christ's return, that there would be mockers in the Christian church, who were mocking other Christians, you know, regarding the physical bodily return of Jesus Christ in glory. Okay. And, uh, we're going to talk, you know, keep this in mind. Uh, I'll refer back to it when, when, when the time comes. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says and, and how Peter refutes this coming heresy, which I think is here. Second Peter chapter three, verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and, and Savior through your apostles. Now, point something out here in verse two here. Peter's making it clear. He's re, uh, reminding them of the predictions of the holy prophets. I think that's a reference all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. I've been reading uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah in uh, in my daily um, devotional work, if you would, and uh, both of them talk so clearly about the end of the world, it's it's rather frightening. Anyway, um, knowing this, first of all, that mockers will come in the last days mocking, following their own sinful desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unrepentant homosexuality being a great example. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from be- the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, these mockers, these heretics, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that existed uh, then was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction and the destruction of the ungodly. So what happens is, is Jesus himself uh, in the Gospels, uh, he likens his return to uh, to the days of Noah. And uh, the fact that destruction came on them suddenly, Peter picks up on that theme here. And in Second uh, Peter, chapter three points out the fact that these mockers deliberately overlooked the fact that uh, that the the ancient world was destroyed because of God's wrath and it was destroyed with water and that the end the coming judgment is going to be just like the flood except for rather than water it's going to be fire okay so um I I don't think Peter here was talking about us being co-recreators with Jesus Christ uh, so that we can participate with God in helping to recreate the world. 
No, he's saying that uh, just by that that the world that existed was deluged with water during the flood and perished, and by the same word, the heavens and earth that are na- that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. I think Second uh, Peter chapter three verse ten uh, completely blows Brian McLaren, Jurgen Moltmann, Tony Jones, Miroslav Volf, and uh, Doug Paget, and all the other emergents right out of the water. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in Kronos time, just like the flood did, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned, and they will be dissolved, burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This does not sound like uh, the, the same hope that Jurgen Moltmann and uh, the emergent guys are uh, <clears throat> are claiming. Verse eleven, Second Peter chapter three. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Notice that the emergence, one of the extensions of their theology of hope is that it's good news for everybody and people can remain unrepentant homosexuals and there's no reason why we should call homosexuals to repentance. Right? Because it's a wrathless eschatology. There is no wrath. There is no judgment. There is no end of the world. Instead, oh, it's uh, we're all in Christ and it's all good. Don't worry about it. You can continue being a, a, an unrepentant homosexual. And Jesus died for you and loves you. And and uh, it, it, they don't even talk in terms of penal substitution. They attack the doctrine of penal substitution. Right. And what do they do? They leave men in their sins. So uh, since all these things, that's the destruction of the world, Christ's imminent return like a thief, um, and all these things are to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to, uh, to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Keep in mind, the way Christ works is through death and resurrection. Right? When Christ comes back, the dead will be raised. You know, everyone who experienced death, they will be brought back to life. In much the same way, the current heavens and current earth are going to experience death. They are going to be destroyed, and God is going to make them anew. That's what Second Peter chapter three, verses twelve and thirteen say. Waiting for the hastening of the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire 
and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We'll pick up the rest of this uh, topic. We're going to look at more scripture here when we get back uh, from our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. My name there is Chris Roseboro. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing. Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your emergent cohort. As soon as you realize you're being fed a lie, well, you might never want to go back. <laughs> all right, uh, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is a listener-supported program, which means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing this program to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, uh, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're in the middle of uh, me taking a look at the biblical doctrine regarding the end of the world and the recreation of the world, if you would, uh, by extension. And it's important to keep this in mind. The scriptures make it very clear that that Christ is going to come again like a thief, like like when you don't expect it. Boom, there he is. And it's going to be judgment day. And on the day when he comes, the heavens and earth are gone. They they get destroyed. It says that they're going to melt while they burn and they're going to dissolve. This does not sound like a positive thing. And keep in mind, I am not a Tim LaHaye dispensationalist at all. Okay? So I'm not promoting a, a Tim LaHaye scenario for the end of the world. Okay? I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Now, the emergents teach otherwise. They teach that Jesus Christ, Jürgen Moltmann said this just plain as day. Jesus Christ is not going to return in Kronos time. He's going to return in Kairos time, as if whatever that means. And eternity is learning how to live in the eternal present, whatever that means. And uh, we're going to we're going to hear a little bit more about uh, this some of these ideas from Brian McLaren himself. Uh, but I want to read the. I want to finish the biblical case here. So we uh, we read Second uh, Peter chapter three verses one through thirteen. I now change over to the writings of the Apostle Paul on this subject uh, from First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. Uh, verses 15 through 17, and uh, as always, I always recommend that people take the time to read things in context. Uh, however, due to, uh, you know, it, I've already read a lot of context here, so I'm not really taking this out of context. Uh, but again, if you would like to read it in context, 
I am not immune from any of the biblical admonitions that I give on a day-to-day basis to compare what uh, people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Compare what I'm saying to the name, you know, it, to the Word of God, and see if what I'm saying is true. First Thessalonians chapter four, starting at verse fifteen, actually fifteen through eighteen, we read: "For we declare to you by a word from the Lord." Okay, so that's the source of this particular information. Paul says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Plain and simple, uh, and, you know, Jesus Christ is going to return in Kronos time. In fact, this, him descending, what is the, the, the cross reference for that is Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascends into heaven, and the angels say that that he will return the same way that he ascended, physically, visibly, and when you know, the whole world's going to to uh, be able to see this event. Matthew chapter twenty four verses uh, twenty nine through thirty one. Reread. This is the words of Jesus. He says regarding the last days, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you this beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. By the way, lightning shining from east to west, that would be visible, don't you think? And in Kronos time. So wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and the great glory, uh, with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the, of heaven to the other. Okay, uh, does this sound like uh, a a non a, a this this is Jesus is basically making it clear he is coming physically again to judge the living and the dead the emergence deny this Revelation chapter twenty one verses uh, one and two we read then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
when you put all of the biblical data together regarding the end of the world and Christ's recreation of the world, we find that Jesus Christ is creating a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, that's what the Bible says. Now, with that in mind, what I would like to do is uh, switch gears a little bit here and uh, first give you the latest parable from uh, from from uh, Peter Rollins, who is an emergent thinker who buys into this entire Moltmannian, Neo-Hegelian theology quote of hope uh, that basically says that Jesus is not going to return physically to judge the living and the dead. We read Peter Rollins, and he says... I am now home, briefly and slowly getting... This, by the way, the name of this uh, is... Um, the, the name of this parable is called The Rapture, and we and this is on his blog, and we read, I am now at home, briefly and slowly getting back to some writing projects. I'm currently working on a number of things, the most exciting being a series of seven short books. The working title for the series is Dis courses, as each will offer an incisive discourse on a theological idea that is intended to send the reader off course and onto a new course. By the way, Peter Rollins, he, he makes it very clear he wants to send you off course. He doesn't want you thinking, uh, embracing sound doctrine and biblical Christianity. He wants to write things that will cause you to go off course. I'm glad he's honest about that. He says, however, I'm also writing new parables. Here's one I wrote this morning. It probably still needs some work, but I thought I would share it anyway. It's called The Rapture. Okay. Just as it was written by those prophets of old, the last days of the earth overflowed with suffering and pain. In those dark days, a huge pale horse rode through the earth with death on its back and hell in its wake. During the great tribulation, the earth was scorched with fires of war, rivers ran red with blood, the soil withheld its fruit, and diseases descended like a mist. One by one, all the nations of the earth were brought to their knees. Far from all the suffering, high up in heaven, uh, in the heavenly realm, God watched the events unfold with a heavy heart. An, om uh, uh, an ominous silence had descended upon heaven as the angels witnessed the earth being plunged into darkness and despair. But this could only continue for so long. At the designated time, God stood up, uh, upright, breathed deeply, and addressed the angels. The time has now come for me to separate the sheep from the goats, the healthy wheat from the inedible chaff. Having spoken these words, God slowly turned to face the world and called forth to the church with a booming voice, Rise up and ascend to heaven, all of you who have uh, who have sought to escape the horrors of this world by sheltering beneath my wing. Come to me, all who have turned from this suffering world by calling out, Lord, Lord. In an instant, millions were caught up in the clouds and ascended into the heavenly realm, uh, leaving the suffering world behind. Once this great rapture had taken place, God paused for a moment and then addressed the angel, saying, It is done. I have separated the people born of my spirit from those who have turned from me. It's time now for us to leave this place and to take up residence in the earth, for it is, it is there that we f shall find our people, uh, the ones who will forsake heaven in order to embrace the earth, uh, the ones who would forsake heaven in order to embrace the earth, the few who would turn away from eternity itself to serve at the feet of a fragile, broken life that passes from existence but, but in, an, in but an instant. And so it was that God and the heavenly host left the place to dwell among those who had rooted themselves upon the earth, quietly supporting the ones who had forsaken God for the world and thus who bore the mark of God, the few who had discovered heaven in the very act of forsaking it.
I think that counts and qualifies as an example of um, mocking what the scriptures say regarding Christ's return. Peter Rollins is clear. He's trying to write things that send you on a different course. He wants to knock you off a of sound biblical t- doctrine and sound biblical eschatology and get you to embrace this heretical uh, eschatology that denies the physical return of Christ and tells you you can become co-recreators with God by participating with God and helping him to realize his dream for the earth, uh, which, by the way, is not biblical. Uh, and as, as kind of a final cap off of this, um, I'm going to play a little bit uh, from Brian McLaren's book uh, entitled A Generous Orthodoxy. Um, this first soundbite, it's a little longer than a soundbite, it's a f- couple minutes from his book, uh, is called uh, Why I Am Green. And I think it, uh, you'll see an example of uh, McLaren basically mocking biblical eschatology as it's revealed for us in Scripture and as the church has believed for millennia. Remember, in the creeds, we read that Christ will return again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. The church has always understood that Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead and that the goats would suffer his wrath. The unbelievers would suffer his wrath in eternity in hell, uh, while believers as sheep would uh, basically enjoy an entire eternity in the presence of God on a new, in a new heavens and a new earth. But uh, that being said, uh, Brian McLaren doesn't believe that, and so uh, we're going to have to uh, listen carefully to what it is that he believes. So here is Brian McLaren from A Generous Orthodoxy on the chapter entitled, Why I'm Green. Chapter 16, Why I Am Green. Imagine that right now you are standing with me, thigh deep in muck, clad in hip waders, we're slogging through a spring-fed bog in northern Maryland. We're surrounded by tussock sedge, alder, jewelweed, skunk cabbage, and swamp rose. The June sun is hot, I'm sweaty, I've got six mosquito bites on the back of my neck, and my forearms are scratched and itchy from thorns of various sizes, (laughs) and I'm having a great time. I'm glad to have your company here in this beautiful place. I've done this for a couple of days almost every spring for the last dozen years. I'm out here as a volunteer with the Department of Natural Resources to do wildlife surveys. When I meet a professional wildlife biologist and other volunteers, they're surprised that a Christian pastor would be out here doing this sort of thing on his day off. I know what they're thinking. Christians are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And too often, my environmentally concerned friends are right. People who are sensitive to creation know that creation is in constant flux. Continents drift, ocean currents wobble, climates warm and cool, magnetic poles flip-flop, and bogs like this one gradually give way to wet meadows and then various kinds of forests. There's a natural succession out here under the June sun. And I think there's a kind of natural succession going on theologically for many Christians as well. Let me mention six elements of this theological succession. First, the standard stagnant theology of creation fall is giving way to a more vigorous theology of continual creation. Okay, listen carefully. His first point is that the standard, quote, stagnant theology of creation slash fall is giving way to a more vigorous theology of continual creation. This is Moltmannian theology of hope, 
right here in McLaren's book, uh, A Generous Orthodoxy. Again, Christ isn't coming to destroy the world and create a new heavens and new earth. He's calling at the end of time, beckoning us to become co-recreators and helping him recreate the world. Basically, renew the current one that we're in. We continue. For much of Western Christianity, the doctrine of creation, a biblical term, has been eaten alive by the doctrine of the fall, not a biblical term. Notice he's uh, at this point denying the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of the fall is not a biblical term. The word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible either, McLaren. I find that to be just disingenuous and insincere. We continue. In other words, creation's downfall resulting from human sin has eclipsed its original glow as God's handiwork, radiant with God's glory. Make no mistake, human sin is awful and reprehensible beyond words, and the whole earthly creation suffers because of it. But if, due to an exaggerated doctrine of the fall, God's creation loses its sacredness as God's beloved artwork... Apparently, the creation has lost its sacredness due to a, a basically a wrong view of the doctrine of the fall, an overemphasis on the doctrine of the fall. Stop focusing on sin and calling sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Instead, focus on, on the creation. Then we have magnified human sin beyond sane bounds. And in fact, we've added to its sad effects. The God-affirmed goodness of creation, the beauty of creation, its priceless preciousness and meaning is God's own handiwork. These values are too seldom heard. When one is careful to not lose the enduring glory and continuity of creation, when one takes human sin seriously enough, but no more seriously than one should. Uh, Serious enough, but not, not more serious than you need to. Huh. Should. Later elements in the biblical narrative, election, redemption, revelation, salvation, eschaton, are themselves understood and integrated as glorious new unfoldings of continuing creation. So he's basically reimagining the doctrines of of, election and the eschaton and things like that as, 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 as part of the unfolding of the new creation, that God's recreating the world. Creation. Seen in this way, creation is revalued or redeemed and made sacred again. Second, the eschatology of abandonment is being succeeded by an engaging gospel of the kingdom. Okay, now notice, he basically is, if you believe that Jesus Christ is going to come in glory to judge the living and the dead, to destroy the current heavens and current earth and recreate a new heavens and new earth, doesn't matter if you're pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, uh, that's what the Bible teaches, um, then that's what he's, he's basically mocking it, calling it an eschatology of abandonment, despite the fact that that's what the scriptures say. See, he's offering an eschatology of hope, he thinks, rather than an eschatology of abandonment. We continue... Evangelical dispensational left-behind eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things or end times, that expects the world to be destroyed in just over seven years or 1,007 years, depending on the fine print, 
makes perfect sense in the modern world. Okay, now stop. He says it makes perfect sense in the modern... So this is a problem of people looking at the Bible through a modernist lens. Wrong. It is not a problem, number one. And how do we come to the conclusion? And by the way, this is this has been taught for millennia that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. It's in our ancient creeds. Long before modernism came around, um, where did they get these ideas? I know from God's word, from the very word, from basically what was revealed by Christ himself. Understandably. Christians in the power centers of modernity, England in the 1800s, United States in the 1900s, saw nothing ahead in the secular story of industrial modernity, nothing but spiritual decline and global destruction. Their only hope? A skyhook second coming, wrapping up the whole of creation like an empty candy wrapper and throwing it in the cosmic dumpster so God can finally bring our souls to heaven beyond time, beyond messy matter, beyond this creation entirely. Uh, by the way, this is um, <clears throat> a little bit of a straw man here, too. Um, I'm going to point something out because he mentions uh, Christianity in the power centers of modernity, uh, you know, Britain in the uh, in the 19th century. Um, we just want to point something out to you. The uh, the dispensational view is a Johnny come lately view, but the historical view still teaches that Christ is going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. And it predates modernity, had nothing to do with modernity. It's what the scriptures teach. It's not about modernity. Entirely. There is virtually no continuity between this creation and the new heavenly creation in this model. This creation is... You mean the biblical model? Creation is erased like a mistake, discarded like a non-recyclable milk carton. Yet I just read the passages that show that that's exactly what's going to happen. And he is flying in the face of clear passages of Scripture, contradicting them, and coming to a completely different conclusion. Wonder why? Could it be that he's, uh, in a post-modernity kind of way, just ignoring what the Bible says? Maybe that's what post-modernity means, just ignore the Bible. Martin. Why care for creation? Why get sentimental about a container that served its purpose and is about to be discarded into the cosmic trash compactor of nothingness? But, but again, by the way, this is a straw man argument. I mean, even when I was uh, a legalistic Nazarene, I was admonished to uh, be a good steward of the earth and the planet that God had made. And that had to do with the fact that God made it and made it as good. I was constantly reminded of that. Nothingness. This pop evangelical eschatology made in pop evangelical eschatology. No, it's biblical eschatology, Brian. Christ is coming again. New heavens, new earth. Old heavens, old earth pass away. What did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass. Those are the words of Jesus. That's red letter stuff made an understandable but serious mistake. It wrongly assumed that modernity was all there was or ever would be. So the church wrongly assumed that modernity was all there ever was and would be. This isn't about modernity. Modernity, it doesn't play into it. 
would be, while it rightly assessed how hopeless the future would be if modernity without end was indeed upon us. Again, straw man, uh, this is, the modernity has nothing to do with it. The text couldn't be clearer. Was indeed upon us. Just as the early Christians could not imagine the gospel outlasting the Roman Empire, 19- Huh? What is he talking about? 19th and 20th century evangelicals couldn't imagine the gospel outlasting modernity, the empire of scientism, consumerism, and individualism. That, dude, their eschatology has nothing to do with modernity. It has to do with being faithful to what the scriptures teach. Individualism. For pop evangelical eschatology to proliferate, it had to ignore, or better, reinterpret much written by the Old Testament prophets. Oh, now there's a funny charge. That's a very, because he completely is avoiding the clear passages of Scripture and the clear teachings of Christ on this matter. And yet, apparently, modernity, the modern uh, imperialistic colonial Christians uh, ignored the Bible. Right. Prophets. Prophetic visions of reconciliation and shalom within history had to be pushed beyond history either into a spiritualized heaven or a millennial middle ground, a post-historic time between history and eternity, so to speak. They also had to marginalize Jesus with all his talk of the kingdom of God coming on earth, being among us now and being accessible today. Uh, the kingdom of God currently is a kingdom of the forgiveness of sins. And Christ will come again with glory to establish his eternal kingdom. He says so. Today. But now, as more and more of us celebrate Jesus as master teacher as well as savior, we are struck by the present hope of the kingdom of God that is so central to Jesus' message. In this kingdom, Jesus said, sparrows matter. Lilies of the field matter. Yes, people matter even more, but it's not a matter of either or. It's a matter of degree. And uh, by the way... <sighs> Reformation Christians, uh, evangelicals, they are not guilty of an either-or. Agree in a realm where everything that is good matters, where everything God made matters. Third. Uh, do I want to do this next section? Hang on a second here. No, I don't. <laughs> Just you got You got the flavor of what McLaren is doing here. What's he doing? He's deconstructing, mocking, and attacking the biblical view that Christ is going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and to base and that heaven and earth are going to pass away, and that God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth, and instead he's uh, got something different. That it's this idea that uh, the kingdom of God is uh, God is recreating the world day by day, and you need to find what God is doing and become a part of it. And Christ isn't going to come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. He's not going to uh, 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 destroy the earth, and he's not going to judge sinners. The uh, good news is good news for everybody, including the creation. <clears throat> we read from uh, uh, page two hundred and sixty-nine of Brian McLaren's book, uh, Generous Orthodoxy, just a little bit more, and then we'll go to our second break. He says, if the world, contrary to fundamentalist expectations, does not soon blow up in a left-behind-style conflagration, but instead goes on for hundreds of thousands of years, we should realize that from the perspective of our descendants, say in 224,000 uh, A.D., 
we are still in the days of the early church. The year, uh, the years one to twenty uh, to twenty one hundred will be out. Uh, will be but a few brief pages in their church history textbooks. Wouldn't one of the greatest gifts of our descendants be to soberly face our early and continuing failures and sincerely repent of them, never forgetting them, but letting them educate us about the dangers of the human heart. So basically, Brian McLaren here in page 269 of A Generous Orthodoxy uh, basically says that uh, things are going to continue for hundreds of thousands of years and that we're in the early, early, early days of Christianity. And uh, he, he foresees the day 224,000 A.D. with uh, no Christ returning uh, to destroy the uh, heavens and earth, anything like it. That's because the emergence deny the bodily, physical return of Christ. And yet Peter says that these people willfully forget that fact and ignore the fact that the old uh, the, that the ancient world was destroyed by a flood and that the current world has been stored up for God's wrath and fire and destruction and that the heavens and earth are going to burn up and melt. And Christ tells us at the end of the story that a new heavens and new earth will come. Again, I'm pointing all this out uh, in, in answer to uh, the email here. So if you say that Christ is going to recreate the world, uh, it's not that we are co-recreators with him and that we're going to be around for hundreds of thousands of years. That's not what the text says. just want to point that out. And wh- how's that prayer go? He- Behold, I come quickly. Anyway, we're up on our second break. And when we come back from our second break, I'm going to have to get to the uh, these uh, news stories tomorrow. I'll do one news story talking about the Christian couple facing uh, losing their hotel and, and criminal charges for offending a Muslim woman. We'll talk about that, and then we'll get into our... Uh, it's not a sermon per se, but it's uh, instead it's a really good lecture you know, that's uh, you know, a, a few years old, if you would, uh, given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel. It's a fantastic, fantastic uh, lecture, so you definitely don't want to uh, miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We're back, hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead here. Real quick, I'm going to do a news story here from the Telegraph in the UK. This is an important story, one that is, I believe is important for me to bring to your attention. And then to balance out the rest of the program, we're going to be listening to uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, my theological mentor, and the guy who saved my life, literally. <laughs> best way I can put it, by introducing me to the gospel, the good news that Christ died for my sins, got me off of the rat wheel of uh, of basically uh, the law, no gospel religion that I was in in the Nazarene church, and uh, gave me Christ and him crucified. We're going to be listening to a lecture he gave a while ago, we're talking uh, more than a decade ago, on uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel. Fantastic lecture. And I was going through some of my archives, and I found this. I was like, wow, this is, a, this is a classic. One that we'll have to put into the mix over at the SoCo Lectures, at Pirate Christian Lecture uh, Radio. We'll put that in under one of the SoCo Lectures that we put on our rotation. But um, let me uh, – sorry. Hang on a second here. From the Telegraph in the U.K., we read, Christian couple face losing hotel after criminal char- charges for offending a Muslim woman. We have got to be praying for our Christian brothers and sisters in the UK. Apparently, uh, offending people is now a crime, especially if you're offending them on a religious uh, grounds. For this is from the Telegraph in the UK. Who wrote this here? John Bingham. We read. Um, uh, a Christian couple face losing their livelihood after being charged with criminal offense for offending a Muslim woman by saying that Islamic dress is oppressive. <sighs> Come on. You've got to be kidding me. Saying that a burqa is oppressive is uh, is a criminal offense? It is. Uh, it, the, a burqa is oppressive. Uh, we read, uh, Ben and Sharon uh, vogan Halzang are, oh, I probably messed up their name, are waiting trial accused of breaching public order by insulting a guest at their hotel in Antree, Liverpool, about her religion. You can't, apparently, that's now a criminal thing. Uh, the couple who are members of an evangelical congregation were arrested by police after getting into a discussion with the woman about the differences between Christianity and Islam earlier this year. Uh, the uh, Mrs. Uh, Vogel 
Vogan Ellen Zhang, yeah, I can't pronounce it. Mrs. V, we'll call her Mrs. V, uh, who is 54, is understood to have described Muslim dress as putting woman in, women in bondage while her husband, 53, allegedly described the prophet Muhammad as a warlord. So it's a crime to describe a burqa as putting women in bondage, and it's a crime to call the prophet Muhammad a warlord. I would call him worse than that. He's a false prophet, and he's a polygamous pedophile. <clears throat> I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna say something offensive and get arrested, hang it all out there, will you? Uh, the Christian Institute, which is finding the 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 Vogan Gelenzang's defense, said that uh, the case showed that Christians are suffering growing persecution by officials who use the law to prevent them from speaking about their faith. Yeah, we've covered a lot of these stories here at Fighting for the Faith. It's really getting pernicious out there in the UK. It's understood that the couple's business, the Bounty House Hotel in Eintree has suffered a major drop in takings because of the case. Friends said that they had been uh, they had seen bookings fall by up to 80% after a local hospital stopped an arrangement in which it recommended the hotel to people uh, to people attending the courses there after hearing that the owners were facing criminal charges. Yeah, criminal charges for saying a burqa's bondage and for saying the prophet Muhammad was a warlord. Oh, you can't say that. Whatever happened to freedom of speech? Is there no freedom of speech and no freedom of religion in the UK? <clears throat> anyway, although the couple have told friends that, that they understood the hospital's position, they fear that they could end up losing their business. It's just a consequence of the case uh, that are not that that not only are they worrying about criminal charges, but they may also lose their business, said Mike Judge, a spokesman for the Institute. It's understood that the argument happened on the last day of the women's, woman's stay at the hotel in March when she appeared in Muslim dress. The woman, who has not been named, is said to have uh, told them that Jesus is considered a minor prophet. Well, why wasn't she arrested? She said Jesus was a minor prophet. That's worse than saying that Muhammad was a warlord uh, in Islam. While the debate also touched on the status of Muhammad, the guests complained to uh, Merseyside police who called the couple in for an interview. They were questioned twice before being charged with a religiously aggravated public order of offense. Uh, man, religiously aggravated public order offense. They appeared before magistrates last week where they denied the charges and are due to go on trial later this year. If found guilty, they face a fine and a criminal record. Uh, the Vogan Gelsenzangs uh, denied calling the Prophet Muhammad a warlord. It is understood that his wife accepts that she used the word bondage about Islamic dress, but denies uh, deliberately causing offense. Even if the court accepts that these things were said, I have read this sort of thing uh, in many Western criticisms of Islam, said Mr. Judge. If we are really saying that someone can't express that without having their collar felt by the police, I think that we're in a very worrisome uh, situation for freedom of speech. <laughs> you think? Um, if we're really saying that someone, uh, he added, there is a persecution of Christians, and I think public officials are misusing their laws in that way. Merseyside police confirmed that the couple have been charged with a with religiously aggravated public order offense. Unbelievable. You know what this reminds me of? Um, if you know the history of, uh, uh, you know, like uh, occupation uh, Europe, when the Nazis came and uh, occupied, uh, you know, the countries like, you know, the Netherlands and Holland and stuff like that. In, in the case of Holland, 
uh, they they came in and occupied Holland, and they basically promised the people of Holland that they were not going to enforce uh, German culture upon the people there, and you know basically promised them all this pie in the sky stuff. And uh, it wasn't long, though, before they started slowly but surely cooking, uh, you know, cooking up the persecution of the Jews before they would, they hauled them off. But it didn't happen overnight. It happened happened slowly. Uh, and you know, some of the early in the early days, what happened is you you had this public persecution of the Jews by the Nazis, uh, them attacking their businesses and things like that and all of that was prelude to the 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 open persecution I mean really big time persecution then being rounded up and thrown into ghettos and then thrown into concentration camps this feels like that kind of persecution in in the early stages I think this is only going to get worse and this is far from uh, an isolated incident this is becoming a regular thing now in in the UK and uh, uh folks you there in the UK uh, you Christians out there you need to stand up for the gospel. And if it means going to jail and being charged with criminal charges, then so be it. But don't let this dissuade you from preaching Christ and him crucified uh, for sins, especially for the sins of Muslims who apparently have... You know, th- this woman said that Jesus was a minor prophet, and yet she wasn't arrested? Huh. <sighs> All right. We are now up on uh it, it it's time for our uh sermon review and it's 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 not really a sermon if you would. So uh it's more of a a lecture. And it's a good one by the way. The name of the lecture is Law and Gospel. It's a fantastic fantastic presentation of the differences between law and gospel and how we are to keep them separate and what the purpose of each is. This is a speech delivered by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt uh, when uh, the White Horse Inn gang still had the uh, cure uh, moniker on them, Christians United for Reformation. Um, Again, I, I can't speak good enough about this, and so... Without any further ado, and let me let me kill the music there. Yeah. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on law and gospel. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll sort of explain to you all that paper that you received. Lord Christ, again, we gather to praise and thank you for what you've accomplished for us in your atoning death, and we give thanks to you not as we ought, but as we're able. We ask your presence amongst us, that everything that any of us does or says honors you and that death on our behalf. For it's for your name's sake we ask it. Amen. All right, if you want to turn with me then, let's do some work in this section on Mueller, Christian Dogmatics, on the Law and the Gospel. He begins by saying that in our day, and this was in the 20s, in our day, this distinction has almost been lost. These two are so mingled with each other by various groups that the biblical way of salvation, he says, has become almost completely obscured. And he mentions the Roman Catholics and the Zwinglians, and he gives a few shots either way. But basically what he's saying is that when these collapse on each other, the very gospel itself gets lost. He quotes one of the Lutheran confessions in which they said, the distinction between law and gospel serves as a special, brilliant light. 
which serves to the end that God's word may be rightly divided and the scripture of the holy prophets and apostles may be properly explained and understood. Uh, that's the reason why it's given such a prominent place. Uh, you look over on this first page of that little short one of the Law and the Gospel, there's something very similar there. Uh, this is not merely a useless controversy about words, he's referring to one that he just wrote about, but it is exceedingly important for rightly dividing the Word of God. If law and gospel are mingled, or the gospel is made a new law, God's grace is minimized, the merits of Christ are obscured, and troubled consciences are robbed of the comfort which they would otherwise have in the gospel when it's preached in its purity. The distinction between the law and the gospel has never been so clearly or so exhaustively brought out as is done in this article, Article 5 um, of the Confession. Now, that's to sort of get across to you right off the bat how important they thought this was. Um, this is not something in the backwater. All right, let's start with what do they mean by the law and the gospel? Deal with definitions first off. There are a couple that I typed out for you there, a couple from the Formula of Concord on what the law is. Basically, what you find there is that the law is command or demand as to what God expects of his creatures in thoughts and words and works and everything else, what is pleasing and acceptable to him. It threatens transgressors with God's wrath and his eternal punishment. It is not the Ten Recommendations, but the Ten Commandments. Huh? Or, another shorter one, a divine doctrine which teaches what is right and pleasing to God and reproves everything that is sin and contrary to God's will, so that everything that reproves sin is and belongs to the preaching of the law. Now that's very straightforward, but we'll do some more in detail later on as to how rigorous this really is. Note right off the bat, it doesn't say God only expects you to do the best you can. Huh? Or as one, uh, one student up at Crusade wrote a final paper I saw one time called, God, Could You Curb the Final? And the answer of the law is, no, there will be no curbing of the final. <laughs> then the gospel, in its strict or proper sense, the gospel. Such a doctrine as teaches what man has not observed, who has not observed the law, and therefore is condemned by it, is to believe. Namely, that Christ has expiated, propitiated, and made satisfaction for all sins, and has obtained and acquired for him, without any merit of his, the sinners, forgiveness of sins, righteousness that avails before God, and eternal life. Now, if I were doing this at Calvary Chapel, this would take two days to explicate before people would even probably disagree with it because it would be so radical and so new that first of all they'd say I'm not sure what you're getting at. Huh? Contemporary evangelicalism is not characterized by a clarity on these issues, it really is not. And that's part of why the white horse in exists. Huh? Uh, so. That's the gospel in its strict or proper sense. You'll hear me sometimes, or Mike sometimes on the radio say, if it takes place within you, it ain't the gospel. If it's something that happens within you, it isn't the gospel. I'll say more about that later on. The gospel takes place outside of you. Okay? Now, says the writer, Scripture itself talks like this, distinguishes between law and gospel, 
in, with regard to the law, everything in Scripture that demands of man perfect obedience to God. Uh, if somebody says to you, uh, how exactly does, uh, is it that I would be saved? Well, it's very simple. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Do that. Or, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Have a nice day. Uh, or what's another one? There are so many. Uh, it's harder for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they had a wonderful reaction to that, which was just appropriate. Lord, then who can be saved? They were looking for plan B. The work of the law was finally, finally doing its work, you know, then who can be saved? Uh, it pronounces God's curse upon all transgressors. People who have done less than absolute obedience to an absolute law are under God's curse. There's absolutely no breathing room in this, whatever. No curve to it at all. Not only do you have to live a perfect life in accord with exactly what the Ten Commandments say, in doing every one of those things, you've got to do it from no vested interest, from total genuineness toward your neighbor. You're looking 100% toward their good and zero toward yours. You're doing it without selfishness at all. That's also part of what's demanded of you and me. The law renders all the world guilty before God, and it mediates knowledge of sin. You'll notice how common Galatians 3 and Romans 3 are. You might take a look at those uh, before tomorrow morning. Now, Romans 3 is the... Genesis 3 is the deep water point of the Old Testament. Romans 3 is the deep water point of the New. There's none that does good, not even one. All their feet are swift to shed blood. The poison of snakes is under their tongues. You know, nobody searches after God, not even one of them. Now, who is this? That's the whole world. Romans 1 deals with the uh, Gentile who dreams that he's going to be able, if Jesus does come back, wherever Jesus is, that he can say when Jesus comes back, look, jump on the Jews. I had no Old Testament. I don't know who Moses is. Jump on the people of the book. We were over here, over in Greece. We didn't know any of that stuff. And Romans 1 wipes that out. Then Romans 2 speaks to the Jew who says, those dirty dogs, they deserve every lick they get. We're the people of God and we possess the oracles. And he'll respect that. And the answer of Romans 2 is, no, 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 no. You who say this, do you do that? And of course they do. You who condemn the Gentile for X, do you rob temples? Why? And of course the answer is yes. And so Romans 2 wipes out the Jew. And then in Romans 3 he just gets the whole world. Huh? So Romans 3, uh, and you'll notice how commonly the uh, references are to that. Then the gospel, everything that offers grace, peace, and salvation to the sinner. You can look some of those up. Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the dynamis, the power of God, the salvation to the Jew first, then to the Greek. So forth. This is the free gift or the free offer. Now, 
The author, Mueller, does mention that both terms are used in Scripture in a wider sense, but we're not going to cover that. I just put it in there as points one and two. You can just notice it, and you can read this later on if you want to, in the full, in the full uh, treatment of it. Now, features that are common to both law and gospel. First of all, they have in common that both are the divinely inspired Word of God. Isn't that one of these is lighter than the other in terms of its uh, epistemological grounding? They are both solidly scriptural. Then, says the author, also, both doctrines, law and gospel, pertain to all men, so that they must always be taught side by side till the end of the world. Says the formula of Concord, from the beginning of the world, these two proclamations have been ever and ever inculcated alongside of each other in the Church of God with a proper distinction. These two doctrines, we believe, should ever and ever be diligently inculcated in the Church of God, even to the end of the world. Okay? So somehow they're both to be taught by the pastors or elders of the congregation, and yet there's to be some kind of distinction as they're both taught, except classical Reformation thought. Now there's a little section here against antinomianism, and again I'm going to let you do that on your own, but I'll tell you the upshot of it. Luther argued that an antinomian, what's an antinomian by the way? Anti, you know in English, that's, again, if I had no nomos is in Greek? Law, against law. These are the people who say I can do whatever I want to do, Jesus died for me. Huh? That's been applied in the back seat of automobiles, but I won't go into that. Huh? Against law, against law. And Luther writes, they want to do away with the law, and yet they teach divine wrath, something the law alone must do. Hence, they do nothing but cast aside the poor word law, but confirm the wrath of God, which is indicated and understood by this term, not to speak of the fact that they wring Paul's neck and place the last first. He ends up arguing that anybody who wants to get rid of the law wants to get rid of the Savior, too. It just takes a while to see how they're going to do it. But you're going to lose grace, too. And he's absolutely right. Boy, this is such a great lecture. I, I dare not interrupt very often. But one of the things that's happening nowadays, we have gospel reductionism and we have the, the rise of a group of people who call themselves outlaw preachers. And they're basically, they are against the law. But as Luther points out and as uh, Dr. Rosenblatt has pointed out, what they're really getting rid of is the Savior too. Because what are we saved from? The wrath of God. And we're declared righteous by what Christ did for us on the cross. And so law and gospel exist together. You have to use them rightly. And uh, the antinomians are, in a, in, in a real sense, getting rid of the Savior. Hmm? This is like those who would save their life will lose it. Hmm? So antinomianism, Luther believed, would lose the whole enchilada. The whole thing would go down the tubes. You would not retain the gospel message after you had, first of all, said that the law had no bearing anymore. But you can read that on your own. Now, here we get to the central section. The law and the gospel considered as opposites. Now, here we want to go kind of carefully and a little more slowly. The reason I say this is because this is kind of a tender point between the Lutheran and the Reformed. And I don't want to, to uh, make this worse than it is. But Calvin would not be especially happy with some of the things that Luther said here about the contradiction between the law and the gospel. In general, the Reformed will tend to want to say, this can be ironed out if we use our sanctified common sense so that God does not look as if he's 
contradicting themselves. Huh? That's part of the reason he gave us our mind, is so that we can understand in that kind of a way and explain it to others too. At this point, you'll find that Luther is more in the side of talking about law and gospel as irresistible force and immovable objects. In fact, he went so far in some of his writings to say that this collision occurs within the Godhead itself. Now, there Calvin would tell him to just bite his tongue. You know, the one ought not talk like that. Huh? But he did. Luther did. All right. Said he, the law and the gospel are as widely distinct as they can possibly be, separated from each other more than opposites. More than opposites. Now, many have tried to apologize for Luther here and say, well, this was really an extreme and misunderstandable statement. He was using hyperbole, surely. But he probably wasn't. He probably meant this right as it stood. Compare the doctrines according to their contents. And we find according to their contents, they contradict each other. The law demands perfect obedience of man in every way. Not only outwardly, that is, you've got to help your neighbor mend his fence, huh? but you've got to do it because you're so interested in your neighbor's good and so little interested in your own. It's got to be from totally genuine motive. The law condemns all who are disobedient in any way at any level. The slightest infringement and you are under the wrath of God. Now, this is not exactly characterized preaching in the churches these days. Huh? It is not really a major theme. Uh, if Gerstner teaching on hell is not the major theme of your local Radiant Happy Baptist Fellowship, neither is this. Huh? That the slightest infringement of law brings the wrath of God upon us, and he will have every right in the world to condemn us forever for it. That is not appropriate for the creature to behave that way or think like that. And as Americans, we would say, gee, isn't that, what do you do, get, off on the, get up on the wrong side of the bed? Hmm, isn't that a bit much? Well, we don't think in Reformation categories of law gospel. We think in terms of, uh, oh goodness, uh, uh, contemporary legal definitions of fairness or something. Uh, so that we can be sure that no aspect of any part or group of the Democratic Party would feel slighted by the uh, the final, uh, uh, what do you call them, the uh, platform. You know, you can ignore it after the after the election, and everybody does. But while you're building it, you pose very seriously: is everybody satisfied with it? And that's sort of the American style today. And that is not, uh, said the reformers, the way Scripture reads. It just is not. Okay? The gospel, on the other hand, demands nothing. We'll talk later on about demanding you believe in Christ. But let's take this just as it stands right now. The gospel demands nothing. The gospel never demands anything of you. It freely offers to all sinners grace, life, and salvation for Christ's sake. And if you really want to impress your friends and confound your enemies, you can say it in Latin. Now, you should memorize a few Latin phrases, especially when somebody gets kind of uppity with you. Huh? It, it, the thing can be translated, get your foot off the fire hydrant. It doesn't really matter what it is. They won't know. But 
Here you could memorize this one. The five more days poked your Christum, the favor of God on account of Christ. The grace of God is the favor of God on account of Christ. The thing you want to notice here, though, is that the gospel demands nothing. It never does. It simply gives, offers, freely offers. It never, never demands, condemns, rejects, or any of that. Now, as I say, the one, the one that we'll run into later on is in the Philippian jailer passage. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll deal with that a little later. The same sinners in Scripture whom the law consigns to eternal damnation, the gospel, for Jesus' sake, assigns to everlasting glory in heaven. The distinction is not because the ones going to heaven are slightly better than the ones condemned. They're the same kind of people. Now, the Reformed will recognize this. This is the first point of Synod of Dort Calvinism. Huh? Right? Whatever causes God to elect some to be saved, it isn't because they were slightly better than their neighbors. Nonsense. You have the right to choose whom you will choose. Who are you as the clay? Answer back to the pot. Huh? Total depravity. The whole world stands leveled before God, and it's all at the level of guilt. And so he doesn't make these distinctions where he says, now so-and-so over there, you know, he resisted less. I kind of like him. Huh? None of that. None of it. Uh, and these same people who are in that condition, and it's the whole human race, these same people, Scripture in other places, assigns to heaven. And it doesn't primarily do it on the basis that they got all better. It's on the basis of Christ. Right? That sounds a little contradictory. The law requires works, lots of them, and genuine ones. And yet the gospel declares that the sinner is justified by faith and specifically says without deeds of law. If you've ever had a conversation with a Roman Catholic who still remembers in his foggy memory what the Roman faith is, he'll bring that up to you. Hmm? The law requires works. The rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, uh, Good teacher. Gag. Good rabbi. What must I do to be saved? Jesus answered back, What does Moses say? Ticked off about four of the commandments. And this guy says, believe it or not, I've done all of that. What am I missing? Oh. Bad answer. Bad answer. I've done all of that. What am I yet missing? And the answer was, all right. Okay. Then go sell everything that you've got and give it away and follow me. And the man went away very sad because he had a lot of possessions. Good stereo system, Gilbert. <laughs> uh, and you get the idea there, uh, that if the person is going to say, I've lived up to that, then uh, Jesus just raises the standard higher. He's sort of a Moses to the fourth level. Huh? Superscript four. Huh? You come and you say, well, I've done that. And he said, okay, well, how about this? How about this? So the demand of the law here is of works, deeply of works, and genuinely works done from a genuine heart. And yet the gospel declares that the same person would be saved apart from works of law. Sure looks contradictory. 
Paul contrasts law and gospel in Romans 3, 22 through 24, and you can also compare Galatians 3, 10 to 14. You can do that on your own when you're at home. But take a look at those and see if you don't think this distinction comes right out of the text itself. Then, argues the author, these two, the law and the gospel, are opposite with regard to their promises. They contradict each other. The promises of the law are conditional. If you do this, then I will. That's how the law reads. And if you don't, then I won't. And the gospel doesn't talk that way at all. It says, I will give you this. I will give you this. Or this is yours. Think of the rich or the uh, prodigal son who's got his speech prepared for when he gets back. And I think we get the sentence or two of it out, but that's about it. Why? Because the father is already running to embrace him. He's already had the fat of calf killed and has the ring for his finger and so forth and so forth. And the party is already starting and the band is tuning up while the guy is trying to say his speech about I've sinned against heaven and earth and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son and you know, it kind of dies in the background. Why? Because the gospel is just pure offer. Uh, the father doesn't come and say, all right, you got one more chance. Okay. Got one more chance. Uh, it's no wonder that non-Christians read that. A lot of people today have never read a paragraph of scripture in their whole life. They never were sent to Sunday school by their parents, even for moral reasons. And so they have no acquaintance with this stuff, whatever. They uh, don't even have to look at it in school, because that would be a problem with church and state. So they have total ignorance of the biblical text. And in some cases, they'll run into Luke chapter 15 and be jarred right down to their toes. Why? Because of the sheer power of the generosity of God presented there. It's not what we would expect. Okay? Uh, the law promises life to the sinner, provided he obeys it perfectly. That's the good news. Don't tell me the bad. The gospel promises to the sinner life and salvation without deeds of law, without work, freely, by grace, so that ungodly people are justified and go to heaven. Wicked people. Doesn't the King James render it wicked? Is that how they say it? God who justifies the wicked, that does not mean improves them. It means he takes them into heaven wicked. And your Roman Catholic friend would go, at that. Some of you might have been in that debate I did with Carl Keating, and one of his points was that a classical old pre-Vatican II Catholic, he said, God is only going to bring good souls into heaven. Huh? Going to clean them up first. Huh? I said, he did. I don't mean purgatory. Huh? The fairly basic collusion there. And here, what the text says is that he's going to bring into heaven wicked people, ungodly people. Now, when they cross over the line, it'll be like, uh, of course, like uh, Field of Dreams, when Burt Lancaster steps off the, foot, uh, off the baseball field and it goes from cleat to a black wingtip. Uh, but up until the time you step across that line, you're going there sooner. At least that's what the Reformation believes. Uh, right up to that time. Uh, and you would be justified by somebody else. You'd have a righteousness that belonged really to somebody else, and God would see that it were yours. The law justifies people who are already in themselves just. Big deal. Hmm? 
That is a category with no inhabitants in it. That's a set with zero representations in it. The law of justifying people who are just. Huh? The gospel justifies persons who are unjust. And it doesn't mean makes them better. It justifies them in the sense that it calls them innocent. God declares them as if they were innocent. The part of the Reformation is here, an imputed righteousness. We'll get into it in detail later. Here's the case of the so-called gospel imperative. Paul to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Said the Lutheran, that's not a legal command, it's concentrated gospel. It's a compressed invitation, expressing in the strongest manner uh, to receive Christ and something that you won't get any credit for anyway. If you do, you'll be told that it was given to you. The faith demanded by the gospel is described in scripture as the very opposite of any human achievement. And the same is true with Paul saying to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it could have gone one step further and the guy said, might have said, I can't. And Paul would have said the gospel again, and the gospel brings the power to can. Walter used the phrase, they preach faith into their heart. What did that mean? Just kept talking about the free offer, and the free offer creates the response that it calls for. Luther said it does this out of nothing. As God created the world, or the universe, out of nothing, ex nihilo, so the gospel creates faith in Jesus out of nothing in the human heart. Right, and I would even add to that, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we read in Romans uh, ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, through the preaching of the gospel. God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. Faith gives him faith. Uh, Walter's statement was, we preach faith into their hearts. Preach the gospel. That's what the scriptures tell us to do. And that's how God gives us faith. Well, actually, it's not. It's worse than that. It's, it's in the middle of resistance it creates it. Uh, you've heard me say on the radio, or Mike and Kim have said it too, don't you believe we contribute anything to our salvation? And Luther said, sure, sin. That's not what the evangelical brethren are looking for, but that was the Reformation position. Okay? All right. The opposite sphere to which law and gospel belong. The law must be preached in all its full rigor and severity. Now, if you want a foil for this, go read Wesley. Hmm? Don't believe Rosenblatt telling you what Wesley says. You wouldn't believe that I was telling you accurately what Wesley said if I told you. Go read it yourself. Pick up the little book, um, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Hmm? And you'll read things such as this. Some of his preachers asked him, what do we do with regard to sins in the lives of those who have been perfected? Wesley's answer to his preachers, you can call those sins if you want to, I would not. I call them mistakes in judgment. Hmm. Read Wesley on this business of sin. There's another one in Wesley that I don't know if it, he knew that it came from the philosopher Kant. I'm not sure. Maybe he did. Wesley was a pretty bright boy. Um, at one point, you find him writing, God never asks of anybody 
but he does not first give them the power to perform. How do you know that you can be perfect? Because God asks it of you. He wouldn't ask it of you if he didn't give you the power to do it. So if he says, be perfect, if your heavenly father is perfect, that means you can. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. Now, that's right out of Kant. The technical phrase is the ought implies the can. But I don't know if Wesley, anybody know if Wesley knew of that? Did he know he was copying or plagiarizing that? He could have, could have been he didn't even know it. But you'll find that with ubiquitous frequency. It, oh, pardon me. <laughs> Not supposed to say the U word at cure, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you will find that very, very often uh, as you work in, in Wesley's stuff. You'll find it very, very often, that sort of theme. If you read the writings of publishers like the Christian Literature Crusade, if you read the preaching of Tozer, a lot of the stuff from the CMA, uh, you'll find that theme. That if God commands something of you, then you, it, you're, it, you can do it. You can know that you can do it because he wouldn't have commanded it otherwise. What did the Reformation say to that? He commands us to do exactly what we can't do. And we get a little uppity and say, well, who does he think he is? Hmm? But that's part of what the law does, is drives us to despair. You know, if that's what's required of me, I'll never make it. Good, you're making progress. Hmm? That's progress. Now, Wesley would have thought that was awful to talk like that. Just awful. Which is a good guide as to it's probably the way you should talk. If Wesley thought it was awful, that's a good barometer. The law must, must be preached in its full rigor and severity. That is, the answer to this problem is not to say, oh, by the way, what this really means is do the best you can. Huh? <laughs> Let me sum up the Torah for you. Do the best you can. God knows you're only human. Huh? That is not a rabbinic summing up of the Torah. Huh? <laughs> it is not. It is not, it is not, it is not. And, uh, if you believe that this gets softer in the New Testament, reread the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said X, but I tell you Y. You know, and the X is a quote right out from Moses. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And everybody goes, yeah, we've heard that. Huh? But I tell you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Hmm? You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Yeah, we've heard that. But I tell you, Anyone who hates his brothers can danger of hell. Luther called this kind of work on Christ's behalf his alien work. Or again, if you want to use the Latin and know your friends, his opus alienum. It's hard to work into the conversation, but they'll fall at your feet as though dead. Uh, <laughs> People will run across whole hallways to get fresh in your martini if you do this. <laughs> Anyway, the Reformation stance was you cannot solve this problem by softening the law. It must be preached in all the rigor and just exactly as it reads. And there are some passages there you can look up on your own. The purpose of the law is to bring the sinner to a clear knowledge of his sin and condemnation. It is to terrify. The primary work of the law is to terrify. 
Or, Luther would say, it's to make things worse than they are already. I sometimes joke with some of the guys when we're talking, I say, if I go onto the Biola campus, I get worse than I am already. The law makes us worse than we are. One of the phrases in Romans 7 is, sin had no power until the law came. Huh? In other words, it's gasoline to the fire. It makes things worse. And every parent knows this. I've got to be gone five minutes, Johnny. I'll be gone just five minutes, I'll be right back. Whatever you do, none, no cookies out of the cookie jar. Now what's he thinking? Cookies! All he can think. He thinks the form of cookiness before his eyes. It's all he can think of. That's Romans 7 in action. Huh? Before the law came, sin was impotent. Luther said part of what the law does is makes things worse in us. Inflames sin. Okay? Now notice, this is a real, this is a central point. This is technically called the second or theological use of the law. Luther thought it was the major use of the law in all of scripture. The law, they said, also is a message of wrath. It is our schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. Now the pedagogos in Greek here is not always what we would imagine. I would read schoolmaster and think hired tutor. Huh? Nice little high school kid who really knows calculus. Uh, that can help my son with his calculus. Mm -mm. The pedagogos says, described in some of the ancient uh, artwork, always had a stick in his hand. He was not this nice hired tutor. Huh? He'd whack the kids. And he'd make sure that they hung out with the right crowd, not the wrong crowd. And he was pretty rigorous. Not, not a good buddy, five years older than your junior high child. But really rigorous. And that's the picture Paul picks here. The law is a pedagogos to drive us to Christ. To drive us to Christ. It's violent. It's strong. Galatians 3.24 The law has accomplished its purpose when the sinner cries out, What must I do to be saved? Now, how many of you have an evangelical background? Does it characterize what you remember in evangelicalism, that when that corner was turned, that the law stopped. The Lutherans said it should, and the gospel be presented, and no more of the rigor of the law. That's what it should have been. This, I think, is worth talking about as we talk tonight and tomorrow. The Lutherans said, when the sinner cries out, what must I do to be saved? The law is to stop. You're to stop speaking it. And the sweetness of the gospel must be spoken. The winsomeness of it. The free gift. The function of the gospel. Over on page three. The function of the gospel to comfort the contrite sinner with the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now they maintain that this sharp distinction between the two spheres, law and gospel, is a constant in Scripture. The law is the message of repentance and contrition, the gospel that of remission of sins. Right, we'll talk about that. I'm sure there will be questions on that. And that is, that's where it's worth it having questions. That's really the center of it. My good friend Dr. Mansky at Christ College speaks of Romanism as um, having a motif of law. 
medieval Roman theology, having a motif of law, and of Reformation theology of having their motif of law gospel, and of contemporary Wesleyan or perfectionistic theology having the motif law gospel law. Huh? I had students at Westmont who said, I'm never going to darken the door of a church again once I graduate from this place, and I knew exactly what they meant. Huh? That is, I felt better as an unbeliever than I do as a Christian. I think I'm going to go back to unbelief because the pain is more than I can bear. Huh? And I knew exactly what they meant. I usually would recommend that they tried the Reformation before they became agnostic because maybe they'd hear a bit of a different theme than that. But now, I'm going to point this out here. <laughs> you... The, the, it leads him to atheism, as he's pointing out. But I think this is also the root of liberalism. This is what the emergent church is. This is what modernist liberals are. This is the outlaw preachers. These are people who basically they can't they cannot handle hearing the law anymore, and they either leave Christianity or set about to destroy it and embrace uh, the destructive heresies that keep some kind of a semblance of Christianity, but completely gut the gospel as well as the law and uh, come up with this perverted version of it. So it's not just atheism that's created as a result of bad law preaching. It's also liberalism. But I knew exactly what they meant. It was all this deeper life movement junk. That kind of stuff does not help at all. Uh, where you say, it sounded so good at the beginning, and it was all so wonderful, what happened? Or you have some wise guy who's a Christian believer who tries to help you out that says, well, if you feel far from God. Thanks for your help, brother. Anyway, that sort of thing characterizes contemporary evangelicalism. You know, where you say, how come I feel worse? Then you say, what kind of a diet are you getting from your Sunday school curriculum and from the pulpit ministry? And what are you getting? Well, you're getting instructions on how to get to a deeper life. Huh? Exhortations to a deeper Christian walk and instructions on all the birds, dogs, and babies of the Bible so that you too can win Bible trivia next Friday night. Huh? Lutherans were convinced this was not the diet that somebody should get. Now, we have a terrible pulpit ministry, too, but it's a different reason. <laughs> then they said, the law and gospel differ with respect to, the, to their principia cognoscendi. That's hard to work into the conversation, too, but let's go a little further. Where do you find it? The law you find written in the heart, Romans 2, 14 and 15, but not the gospel. If I preach the law as a pastor, it's going to be a lot easier for me because people will recognize the truth of it. Why? Because it's built into them. It's like a uh, piano tuner with a tuning fork. You know, you hit that fork and you bring it next to the piano, and if that one string is anywhere where it's supposed to be, it should start resonating with that tuning fork. Huh? And that's true with the law, Romans 2, 14 and 15. The Gentiles, by what they do, show that the law is engraved on their hearts, their consciences either accusing or excusing them. You do that with the gospel, and there's no resonating answer back from the human heart. You preach the law, and people say, yeah, that's right, that's right, pastor, that's right. You preach the gospel, they say, huh? What's that? The gospel is not located in the human heart. Luther said that's why it's going to be pounded in from the outside. Because it doesn't dwell there. It isn't born in us. 
It ain't part of where you find it. The gospel is the hidden wisdom of God made known to men only by special revelation of Scripture. He lists as proof that all man-made religions are religions of the law. Luther would say there are two religions on earth. The first one has to do with the grace of God, and the second one is everybody else. The whole group of the rest of the religions of the earth. Those are the two groups. The question was raised during the antinomian controversy whether the sin of unbelief must be reproved from the law or from the gospel. You can do that on your own. Summary, yeah. Law and gospel are only different aspects of God himself and his relation to the sinner. The law shows God as he condemns the sinner on account of his sin. And the gospel describes God as freely forgiving and justifying the sinner for Christ's sake. All right, let me see if we can go through one more section here, and then I'll open it up for questions. I know the evening gets long, and we're scheduled to stop at 9.30, right? Okay. The connection between law and gospel. Said the Lutherans, although they're radically distinct as far as their content is concerned, nevertheless, they must be closely conjoined in practical application. Uh, Luther said it. Let's see if I can find that one. <clears throat> um, let's see where that one is. I'll find it later on. Anyway, when you consider the conversion of somebody, this is where you see it, uh, how they must be put together or occur in conjunction. Conversion presupposes a preaching of both law and gospel. Uh, if you have the preaching of the gospel without the preaching of the law, the person stays secure in their... Uh, feeling basically okay and that God will grade on the curve and there's no need really to get too radical about Jesus. Right, exactly. If you preach the gospel without the law, you keep the sinner secure. You can err on both sides of this thing, preaching the law without the gospel or preaching the gospel without the law. Great point. Uh, he functions as a fine example and will help you to do better next week than you did this week, but uh, that's about it. And if you have the preaching simply of the law, all you do is make somebody suicidal or hypocritically uh, believe that they're pulling it off. You know, that's for sinners. I, on the other hand, am the, the factory representative for the United Way campaign and have never cheated on my wife and fill out an honest 1040. But for those who really need a savior, you know, the sinners, there is for them. Hmm? <clears throat> uh, the law must first convict the sinner of sin and guilt and terrify and humble him, causing him to, to despair of his own efforts to save himself before the go gospel may accomplish its com comforting and saving function. The law must point out to the sinner his spiritual death before he can rejoice in the life the gospel gives. The law must convince him of God's righteous demands in order that he be willing to accept by faith the free gift of the gospel. The law must proclaim sin in order that the gospel can proclaim grace. The law itself does not lead to Christ, it just leads to despair. The way in which it serves the sinner here is to point out his need to him, to cause him to despair. And then over on page four, the law by itself does not produce any moral change either, any improvement in the sinner's heart. It doesn't soften him or make him more willing to accept Jesus or any of that. It just drives to despair. Then another place, said the Lutherans, that we have to consider that these can't be split when you consider the sanctification of the Christian believer. 
Now, this will interest some of you, especially if you have an evangelical background. According to the new man, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the believer does not need the law. He now has the divine law written in his heart, the same way Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, I'll put a, take out your stony heart and put a real heart within you, one of flesh. And in the new man, <clears throat> the Christian obeys the law carefully and willingly as Adam did before the fall. Now, if all there were to us was new man, there would be no problem. However, when you view the Christian believer according to the flesh, which the Reformation people believe still cling to us, then, according to the old man, the believer neither knows the law thoroughly, nor does it, does he fulfill it willingly, constantly opposes and transgresses it. Now, if you really want to get this conversation going very efficiently with your evangelical friends, just bring up Romans 7. You won't waste any time that way. Hmm? I mean, why waste the whole evening getting to where you find that the dividing point is that you believe that we still have the flesh or the old nature within us, and he doesn't. Huh? He's doing his spiritual breathing. No, never strike that. Uh, anyway, he, he's following along a Wesleyan track, and you're not. And by the time 11 o'clock comes, you know, and two bottles of wine later, you discover, I think I know where the problem is between us. Huh? Romans 7, we'll get that cleared up right off the bat. It's written in the present indicative, Paul does not write, uh, and, you know, that section about the good that I would, I do not, that which I hate, I continually do, the wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And it's all written in the present indicative. You know, it isn't what I was, but what I am. And if you really want to introduce this quickly, if you happen to be a child of the Reformation, you can get this introduced really quickly by saying, I found the passage in the Bible that gives the best description of the Christian life in all of Scripture. It's in Romans 7. And that will hurry the conversation along. That will make it snappy. Uh, the conversation will move right along at that point. Because your evangelical friends will tell you to bite your tongue if that's almost blasphemous to talk that way. The real Christian life is in Romans 8. That Romans 7 is the story of Paul before he came to know the Lord. Hmm? Now that is the way it's written, but that's the way it'll be taught there. Anyway. So. According to the old man, we neither know the law thoroughly, nor do we do it or fulfill it willingly. We oppose and transgress it, even as believers. Luther called that flesh. But part of us was flesh, and he didn't mean this. Huh? He did not mean that. He meant the old, unregenerate part that would not bend the knee to Christ till the very time we walked into glory, it would not bend. Part of us would be in rebellion against him, and, and would, it would remain with us. So, they said, together with the gospel, therefore, the Christian believer must still continue to use the law. And they spoke of a curb, a mirror, and a rule. That is, the law is to operate to, at least outwardly, crucify the evil flesh, the old nature that won't bend. Only the gospel can destroy the old nature inwardly, but the law is needed to, at least in a superficial fashion, keep that thing from growing any more than it already wants to. Secondly, that the Christian is to use the law as a mirror to remind him of his sinfulness, that it remains with him. Only the gospel can tell him how he can be cleansed from sin, and here we don't mean Wesleyan perfection, but forgiveness of sin, 
The law can't tell us that. But the law can still be used to remind us we have not arrived. Huh? And thirdly, as a rule, here's the third use of the law in Calvin, and Lutherans also hold to it, that the law still is to be used by the Christian as a fleshing out of what is it to live to please God. Luther didn't believe that was the main use of the law in the Bible. The second use to drive us to despair was the main use of the law. But still, it had a function for the Christian to show us what the Christian life is. Now, said they, there is no contradiction between passages such as 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is not made for a righteous man, and those which apply the law in all its uses to a Christian. Those are not contradictory. There are two aspects to the Christian. In the new man, you don't need the law. But that's not all there is to you. There's old Adam in you too, and me. What more in you than there is in me, but we both have. <laughs> and more in Horton than in both of us. <laughs> so, both of these, conversion and the sanctification of the believer, are the result of both law and gospel, each playing its part. And I mentioned earlier, the preaching of the law alone results in hypocrisy or suicidal despair, and the preaching of the gospel alone results in indifference and security. They've both got to play their part. Okay, law gospel means this, that as natural man, you hear the law, and that's what you should hear first. That is, that God demands utter, utter perfection from you. If you're to live with him on a legal basis, that's what you need to do. And if that does its work, it should drive you to the brink of despair, where you should say what the disciples said, I can't do that. Is there another plan? Is there anything else? Am I lost? And there the gospel, that Christ has died for you and satisfied the law completely in your behalf and freely allows that to be given to you simply by your taking it in faith. Then comes, in some churches, the law again where the steady diet you get as you worship every Sunday morning is instructions in holy living. And you say to yourself, wait a minute, where did the freshness go? Huh? I mean, it was so wonderful for a while. I remember it back then. It was so freeing. What happened? Well, what happened is the diet you're getting from the pulpit or from the curriculum, which is totally focused on cleaning up the Christian in a kind of a perfectionistic way. Uh, and here it makes a very great difference what kind of a church you're attending. I used to tell my students at Westmont they'd never heard preaching in their lives other than in a Billy Graham crusade. And they thought that was just crazy. I said, you haven't. In your churches, you're getting instructions and exhortation on the deeper Christian walk. That's what you're getting. You're not getting preaching. And after a while, that made some sense to them. The gospel tells you that all you have is Christ, so that if you look in the mirror in the morning, the way you're looking into the law and you say, I am still sinner, and it touches your conscience, the gospel says Christ has died for you. The death of Christ can even save a Christian. Hmm? That is, the gospel directs you back to Christ, who is your only hope anyway not your Christian improvement. You're not going to present your Christian improvement to God at the last day. You're going to present Christ, or Christ will present you uh, without blemish or spot. And you'll be without blemish or spot because you're covered by his righteousness. 
uh, but you will not present, you know, that I grew so much in the Lord. So the gospel directs you back to Christ because you're facing despair again. How come the hurrier I go, the behinder I get? Or why aren't I getting better faster? And the gospel directs you not within, but outside. Part of the work of the third use of the law is again to make us realize that even with the Spirit living within us, or however you want to say it, you remain sinner. And some people are very surprised to find that out after the way it's been presented to them in their Christian evangelist's meeting. They're surprised to find out there's any of that left in them. Boy, is there ever a lot left. And what do we do then? Well, the gospel comes and says, well, it's the same as it was before. Christ is all you've got. And it's his imputed righteousness that saves. Not that your heart is a little better than when you went forward or did whatever you did yesterday. Your hope is not the change in your heart. Christ is your hope. He'll save people with not very much changed hearts because the imputed righteousness covers unchanged hearts too. Hmm? Does that make sense? The whole of the gospel in the Reformation is in imputation, the word imputation. The whole thing. That the righteousness that saves you is somebody else's. You're wearing it like a robe. And underneath, it's a mess still. But you're going to heaven anyway. You know, the Reformers talked about a righteousness that was quorum hominibus as compared with my neighbor. Huh? He's really a jerk. I, on the other hand, am a pretty good guy. And the Reformation thinker said, that doesn't matter. Righteousness in the Bible is quorum depo. That is, as compared with God and the perfection he demands in the law. Not as compared with Charlie. He's an alcoholic, I'm not. He snorts coke, I don't. He does this, I don't. The Bible could care less about that. We care a lot about it. But that just shows what kind of shape we're in. Christ died to save downer people. He'll save depressives, too. The death of Christ will save depressives. Um, but if you're looking to compare it, quorum hominibus again, uh, what the Reformers said was, there will probably be lots of good works in the lives of those who believe, but they won't see them. Luther said, pray that your neighbor sees them, and pray that you don't. Pray that you don't see your own. Now, Calvin, on the other hand, gave different counsel left than Luther. He said that one of the ways in which God lets the elect know was through their progress and grace. Luther didn't talk like that. He said, don't look for your own. The key, contra the evangelical, is not inside you, it's outside. That is, you throw yourself to Christ again and say, you're my righteousness. You're the only hope I have, and I just discovered it again in the last 15 minutes. You are all I've got. You're all I've got. If that righteousness doesn't work, mine isn't for piffle. So the key is outside, not inside. And I'm convinced the Reformers didn't know psychology. Luther tried to deal with those, his own depressiveness as best he could uh, at that time. But I think if they would have had some of the equipment, they would have said that that is the best hope you've got for improvement is that, rather than I'm going to put myself under an evangelical checklist 
and I'm going to do an inventory of myself each day. The reformers would have said, that's a slippery slope. You know, I'll see you in San Quentin. You know, they did not have any confidence at all in turning the person inwards. In fact, one of the functioning definitions of sin in the Reformation was the incurvitas, that we had the tendency to curve in on ourselves, both in worship and in looking for answers. And it, for them, it was almost a functioning definition of sin. So they would direct you outwards. They would say, isn't it the truth? Same thing with me every day, you know? And I, and I wish it would get better, and for all I can see, it's getting worse. But I have Christ, or Christ has me, and he has died for me, and so forth and so forth. They would direct you outwards to that, not inwards. Now, that's very different from evangelical counsel, and especially as it's getting worse today, where Horton tells me about all the ones, the reading recommendations into mystics. I mean, it's getting worse. By the way, the mystics he's referring to there would be like Richard Foster and the guys who are into the spiritual disciplines. We're talking about something that has really taken root in this whole contemplative mysticism and the Lectio Divina and all that kind of stuff. And the fact that uh, such big churches as Bill Hybels and those gangs are referring people to the... Uh, uh, to the Richard Fosters and uh, the celebration of the disciplines and stuff like that. These are all mystics. Uh, this was a problem. This was a problem that was uh, that came on the scene. Uh, began to come on the scene in the in the uh, early '90s, and that's what he's referring to here. Christianity is basically a faith that focuses outside of your innards. Luther got very frustrated with Melanchthon one time. Melanchthon had definite tendencies to wander around in his inner life. I wonder if I trust Jesus enough this morning. And when Luther was under the ban of the empire and could be shot on sight, there was a bounty on his head. He was hiding out the Wartburg, translating scripture, and the only way that Melanchthon could communicate with him was by courier. And another one of Melanchthon's inner-oriented letters came to Luther and said, I don't think I trust Jesus enough today. And Luther had had it. And that's when he wrote back, Paco Fortiter, go sin bravely. And then, with the part the Romans don't quote, then go to the cross and bravely confess it. The whole gospel is outside of you. Think about that one tonight. The whole gospel is outside of you. It's a transaction between the Father and the Son to your benefit. If anything has to do with a change in you, inside, it ain't the gospel. The whole gospel is outside of you. You know, you say, I'm on a treadmill and it's going faster than my feet. The world is moving past me in the wrong direction. Huh? I'm running as fast as I can. I'm losing ground. Christ died for you. Luther said that when you're at that level, you throw Christ in the Father's face. That's how he said it. You throw Christ in the Father's face on your behalf. Absolutely. It's not easy to see at the time, but it's what you must do. When you're really stretching it to the wall and saying, well, look, how free am I in Christ? The answer is to the limit. You won't have the same desires as you had before, but if you're going to ask it that way, the way a two-and-a-half-year-old would, that is, how far can I go? The answer is, you haven't got the ability to go far enough to outreach. The only way, and here again is a Lutheran, the only one where will trip the switch is, is if you're going to become an unbeliever. But if you're talking about 
you know, behaviors, uh, I think what Paul is saying is that, uh, that all things are lawful, it's just that you won't see it the same way. See, if it, if it becomes to where all of a sudden you've got something that, that dilutes or obviates the gospel, it isn't gospel. Can Christ save sinners? Answer, yes. You say, how bad is sinners? Answer, really bad. Huh? That's, that's paraphrase. That's worse than the living Bible. But you get the idea. Huh? It is. That, that's the claim of the gospel. The death of Christ saves sinners. Not pretend sinners, but real ones. Child abusers. Huh? What you, whatever you think is really bad. Christ died for that. Christ died for that. I'll leave you with that one for the evening. Thanks. All right, so there was a fantastic lecture. Great, oh man, just good stuff. Uh, by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on uh, the proper distinction of law and gospel. Folks, this is uh, the bread and butter of the Fighting for the Faith program. This is the, this is the message that we bring day after day after day here at Fighting for the Faith. And it's found, funny enough, it's even this proper distinction of law and gospel is found in Christ's command uh, in Luke chapter 24 to the church to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. The gospel is such good news. It's for the whole world, including you. That's right, you. And uh, you cannot hear the gospel enough. And you must also hear the law, too, because today you've sinned. Today you have fallen short of the glory of God. Today you haven't loved God perfectly, and as a result of it, you have done things that have earned you hell today. Same with me. But the gospel tells us this incredible good news, the good news that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, all of them, yours and mine included, Therefore, repent and believe this good news. Trust in this good news. It's not to be found inside of you. It is only to be found in the revealed and proclaimed word, the word that we are called to proclaim to the entire world, uh, the Holy Scriptures, the Gospels, the, the New Testament, the story of Christ and Him crucified for our sins. You find it in the Old Testament rather clearly, too. Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. This is the good news that we're called to proclaim to all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. Well, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if this is if this program and the resources that we make available, the reviews that we do here, are valuable to you, and you're growing in your discernment and hearing the gospel and being comforted with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, and as a result of it, it's it's radically changed everything for you. Maybe in some areas for the worst. Then will you consider supporting us? I know that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, my life has gotten really upside down. But thank God I'm hearing the gospel. In order for us to continue bringing this program to you, we are subject to uh, <laughs> the, the the capitalistic system that we live in. Yeah, that's right. We We have to pay our bills. And therefore, uh, in order for us to continue doing this, we need your support. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. And by doing so, you make it possible for us to continue bringing this program to you as well as to other people. 
and uh, help us to expand the reach of this important radio outreach. Um, or you can make your gift payable the traditional way, uh, make it payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name is Chris Roseborough or follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross to redeem you and purchase you back for your sins. Amen. Amen.